you know, I do like a, a bunch of pharmaceutical jobs, you know, pharmaceutical ads where it's like the old people like riding their bike or something <laughs> like that, you know, because they're not like, you know, bleeding out of their ears anymore, but some, <laughs> some new, some new drug, you know? And so it's like, uh, yeah. So it's like stuff like that. They're going to need professionals for, and a professional brings a lot. This is the Vance Crow podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad you're here. On Wednesdays, I sit down with an expert to discover how did you learn everything that you needed to learn to become an expert in your field? What was the discipline and the habits that you had to develop to make your expertise possible? And this week, I am speaking to perhaps the most modest guest I've ever had on the show, an international photographer and cycling coach, Eric Frazier. Now, it's difficult to describe photography just over the airwaves. So if you're really interested and you're enjoying the conversation, I recommend you flip over to the YouTube channel because I will have posted some of the photography that Eric has put forward. And it's only then that you can really see that he is truly an expert at his craft. The entire conversation was really fun, but I found myself having to pull Eric back to describing his expertise because he's so modest that he'd rather talk about his stories working for a numbers keeper on a horse track race or how he enjoys mountain biking and is comfortable going down the downhills. But it is very clear when you go visit his website or if you see the photographs that we put up on this episode that Eric is a true expert and it was an honor to have him on. I am excited about you listening to this because I get to ask questions like, what does it take to become faster? And his answer is so surprising that I found myself being completely mesmerized by what he had to say. Now, we're going to get to the interview in just a second, but I was invited by a man named Chris Lane to come up to Agribition and put on a live taping of the podcast. But Chris Lane, who is the CEO of Agribition, never does anything like a normal person. He always goes bigger and better than whatever you would expect. So Chris, when he invited me, also suggested that I bring along two other people. Jared McDaniel, host of the wildly popular ag podcast called Ag Uncensored, and Dwayne Faber, who is a former guest of the podcast, a comedian, and a full-time dairy farmer in Washington State. The three of us are going to come up and put on a podcast taped live in the Livestock Show. We're pretty excited about this. It's going to happen on November 26th in the afternoon. We'll put more things out in social media about the exact details, but we hope you come. We hope that you sit in on our taping and you get to hear the comedy of Dwayne, but also take in all the sights and sounds of Agribition. It is Canada's largest livestock show, but it's also one of the largest beef auctions in the entire continent. So this is a pretty exciting moment. I take it as incredibly humbling that Chris would invite us up there to do something new and different, and it is going to challenge Jared and my ability to record in a completely different new medium. So in a couple of weeks, I'll be back and sharing the video and audio from that interview, and I hope that it is something really interesting and special. I hope you'll stay tuned for more details, but if you are anywhere near Saskatchewan, Canada, why don't you head up on November 26th and check out Agribition because we'll be there putting on a show and we'd love to say hi and meet up with you. So without further ado, I'm going to head to the interview with Eric Frazier. Thank you so much for stopping by and buckle in because this is a very interesting interview. Cool. Eric Frazier, 
Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. So, Eric, you are the first person that I have ever met that as a professional coach, you are deriving oh, really? your income from doing the, I mean, you know, high school football or basketball or something <laughs> yeah. like that, but like yeah. you're making a living out of taking people that have dreams of being incredible cyclists and helping them make it happen. Thanks. I not, I'm not making a living quite yet. Cause I'm starting uh, my company's still pretty small and I'm just starting out. I'm still making um, the majority of my income from uh, photography. But so. when did you decide you wanted to start transitioning over to doing cycling? Uh, last year, 2018. So really pretty new. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I mean, I've been a cyclist. I've raced bikes for 25 years. Um, so I've, I've got a lot of history in it and, um, you know, from that, I've always kind of been interested in training and, and things related to getting better performance, uh, for racing. And so, over the years, I've just, you know, with just had a lot of experience and um, uh, gained a lot of knowledge from it. And so I always had that kind of going for me and just an interest in it in general. And so um, I guess I started thinking the last couple of years, I was sort of thinking about um, getting out of the photography business and moving into something else. And it just seemed like a pretty natural fit. Although... I mean, I think a lot of people would hear somebody saying, I want to get out of the photography business, but you are like at the top of your game in the photography world. This is not like, I don't want to go shoot weddings anymore. You're shooting like legit photography. Yeah. Thanks. I, you know, I, I've been pretty lucky. Um, I've been very fortunate and I've, um, I've been able to do it for so long and, um, got a lot of great opportunities and, and, um, shot a lot of great jobs for sure. And how, you know, have a lot of great clients, you know, really top notch clients and stuff. So it's been, um, who are your clients? Who have you done photography for? Um, I mean, the list is pretty long, probably most of the companies no one's heard of, but, um, I mean, I've shot for Apple mostly video for Apple, but, um, stills for Toyota and Chrysler and other car companies, um, Salesforce, Google, you know, like, quite a few major companies for sure. So it's, so this is what sounds astounding to me. I mean, that is the top of the world that that's, I mean, as far <laughs> as like, as far as high, as high up on the mountain, as I can see, mm -hmm. that's where you're at. And you're deciding I'm going to jump out of this plane <laughs> and try and jump into another or build another one. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it does sort of sound kind of crazy. And you know, when people kind of, when you tell them what you do for a living and you know, your photographer, of course, like people immediately kind of say oh do you shoot weddings you know my cousin like they're they're getting married soon and stuff like that and I sort of have to be like no I, I don't really do that you know I, I used to years and years ago but um I'm a commercial photographer I'm mostly shooting advertising and some editorial and so um then they're sort of you know their eyes get big and they're like oh oh wow you know and then they you know, you're not really sort of sure immediately, like what they're kind of what they're thinking, like, cause how much do they know about it? What's, you know, sort of their knowledge of that world. Um, and then if they ever go to your website, they're sort of like, Oh wow. Like he seems kind of legit, you know? Oh, I mean, uh, and that's actually which... le legitimately what happened to me Okay, <laughs> because you, you were the one that shot the photography for my wife. So right. my wife, Ann Crow was actually just on the podcast a couple weeks ago Oh, was she cool? and, uh, she's launching her own company and you guys worked out a deal where she was doing the photography. And I remember when she said like, Oh, we have this photographer and I kind of blew it off until the night before. And then I was like, Annie, <laughs> do you know who this guy is? <laughs> Uh, thanks. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it, it is a nice feeling when people sort of like realize, you know, um, 
But, uh, you know, that being said, I mean, there's a lot of guys out there um, that are a lot better than me and they do a lot bigger jobs and um, they're a lot more successful than I am. I mean, I'm sort of, I'm kind of in the like, you know, I wouldn't say like I'm rich, but I'm like upper, upper middle class, maybe when it comes to the, the world of photography, I would say in terms of like the commercial world goes, um, one of I've the, had some great, some great jobs. One of the metaphors that I have started using, I, I so I started doing uh, Brazilian jujitsu mm-hmm. uh, in the last six months. And, uh, are you, are you familiar with oh, it? Yeah. So the belt system to me makes a lot of sense. You know, you have the white belt, which is just like a total beginner. That's where I'm at with this podcast. You know, you're <laughs> just figuring things out. You know, there's so much going on that just showing up is good enough. And then you get up to blue belt and uh, blue belt is you're capable to defend yourself against most people. You're going to be just fine. And then the gradations that happen between blue to black, you couldn't understand those mm-hmm. unless you're in the game. And then black belt, everybody just knows that's an expert. But for a for an outsider like me, all I can say is he's a black belt. I don't know. <laughs> I can't tell who he's the greatest black belt or he's just a new black belt. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a pretty good analogy, actually, because, you you know, there's there's lots of black belts out there. Um, but you as you know, like there's certain black belts that are better than other black belts. I mean, there's definitely sort of gradations in there. And that's it's similar in the cycling world as well, in the racing world, because you've got a pretty big range of you know, of professional cyclists that are, um, you know, the differences between sort of a, um, a lower level professional cyclist and a top level professional cyclist, you know, somebody that races the Tour de France or something, um, the differences between them are narrow compared to a recreational rider and a professional cyclist, right? Then differences as you go up, they're smaller and smaller differences. And it's the same in the photography business. It feels like the belt system or photography or chess or any of these things, each one of these belts is a standard deviation of how many people are there, right? It's mm-hmm. the it's the amount of progress that you have. And then it's also way fewer numbers each time you go up in the in the belt right when when you're when you were imagining hey i'm going to do photography did you have any idea how this belt system would work so to speak like did you know Mm. hey i'm shooting for black belt which means i'm going to get to do video for apple and i'm going to do toyota commercials and you know i always sort of had i mean i've always sort of been ambitious so i sort of always had ambitions to be you know, when I was in college, I went to Webster University here in St. Louis. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, yeah. And so, and I and I figured out I wanted to be a photographer when I was in college. So, I was pretty lucky because I, you know, I didn't sort of graduate with a kind of a regular degree. Mine was really focused on photography. It was actually, the degree is media communications with an emphasis in photography. So, um, I was pretty clear on what I wanted to do. And so, um, I always kind of imagined like, you know, or always sort of dreamed of like being the national geographic photographer, you know, like I wasn't sort of thinking about like, I want to be, you know, the next Richard Avedon or something, you know, fashion guy. I wanted to be like the national geographic guy that's out going out into the, you know, foreign lands and, and capturing people and things. And, um, ironically, I, I didn't really focus. That was sort of like this, this pie in the sky dream, but I didn't really focus on, sort of doing that because what happened was, is I, I graduated, um, and immediately moved to Colorado because I, I was always into the outdoors. And so, um, I wanted to live out West. And so I immediately moved to Colorado and 
was very distracted quickly by <laughs> you and everybody else skiing and biking and climbing the flat irons yeah right so i was definitely like very distracted by that and so i ended up you know when i got there i i i did some photo assisting jobs and and kind of funny things like i don't have you ever heard of um party picks where it's basically uh i was hired by a company i would go into uh, fraternity and sorority parties and just take pictures of people like having fun and you know party pics are like where you know it's like two people or three people yeah like yeah smiling it's just like a shot you know it's like uh, but back then it was shooting on film so i would get paid per roll of film that i shot so and they encouraged me to uh you know shoot as much as possible and so yeah i would just go to these like frat parties and and take photos and i bet at first that was weird. like can, that had to have seemed like the dream job that had <laughs> it to seemed pretty cool i mean definitely it was like it was a pretty good gig i would say and um you know the funny thing was is you know i mean i was like gosh i mean i was like 23 maybe or something like that um and just having fun out there and of course like you know, you would take, take some photos of the kids and everything like that. And then, you know, you, you sort of are exploring the house and you end up in some random room where they're like smoking big bongs or something. Like that. <laughs> and they're, you're doing shots or whatever. And they're just like, Hey, you want some? It's like, well, okay. You know? So I was like, ended up parting with them a little bit, which, you know, I totally shouldn't have, but you know, yeah, when you're young, what was that mean? That, you know, come on. Exactly. You don't get to do that when you're the 40 year old photographer, no, but it's okay when you're no, in your 20s. Exactly, because it's not like my clients were there; they were like not present. So anyway, I uh, yeah, so I did that, but I also like worked at REI and like you know was in the outdoor industry and kind of just was not really like doing a lot of shooting. Otherwise, my own shooting, um, I wasn't like super focused on photography. I was kind of just trying to. I was having fun out there, kind of trying to figure out what I was going to do. And when you first, either maybe when you're at Webster or you're out in Colorado, you have enough skill to know, you know, what good photography is or framing. Are you just constantly looking at other people's photography or, or do you not care that much? Is it like the writer that has to read thousands of books to be good at writing or something else? You know, the funny thing is, is I was never... I mean, I know I'm friends with a lot of photographers, obviously very good photographers, and they're sort of like that quintessential, like they were obsessed, you know, they, they were taking photos in high school and they've always been obsessed and they're super knowledgeable about history of photography and super knowledgeable about other photographers. And they always have a camera on them and they're sort of always ready, you know, and I was never, and I used to kind of feel guilty about this because I felt like, you know, if I worked harder, I would do that. But, um, I was never sort of that guy. I was a little sort of too like distracted, I guess. And so, um, I just wasn't like that focused on it. And so I wasn't enough of a student of it. It wasn't until like years later that I started to really, when I kind of buckled down and became a lot more focused on, on the job and getting somewhere on the job. That's, that's kind of when I started to, to just focus more on. Was on, that when you were tired of being poor? Uh, yeah, that was a lot of it actually. I, um, I, well, I actually, you know, I, I met a woman in uh, New York city. I lived there for a few years and she was my first wife and, um, we're still good friends. I love her to death, but, um, she was one of the first people that really kind of, that I really spent a lot of time with that sort of had this crazy work ethic, you know, just like she was focused, you know, and she worked in, in production. She worked in like, um, she worked on TV commercials and, 
and uh, films and stuff like that. She was more in the motion side. And so she, um, yeah, she just, I, I really kind of rubbed off on me just like her work ethic, I would say. And so I started to like focus a little bit better that way. And, you know, yeah. And then I started sort of realizing like, you know, I wouldn't even say it was the money at that point. And a lot of it was just like wanting to get better, wanting to really get the big jobs to get the big clients. You know, I just became, um, my ambition kind of came back a little bit more. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I find that too. Like when I look back on my life, most of my twenties was spent searching. Like mm -hmm. I was just exploring. I was, I was bouncing around from here to there. And when you're exploring the thing that you're giving up is depth. And, and I didn't have a dream that I could be trying to work towards. Yeah. So I was just really, really wide. And I completely agree. I mean, when I met Anne, I realized that, you know, I have a skill that is, if I want to learn something quick enough to be able to, you know, make it work, I can do that. I can spend a month and, and pound on something, but to watch Anne start to do something where she's like, I'm going to do something for the next five years. <laughs> then you start realizing, Oh, th that's the pace of a marathon runner mm -hmm. and they can get a lot, lot further than the sprinter. Yeah. Yeah. How long have you been married? Um, let's see here. It's uh, eight years now. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we dated for all of six months before I proposed to her. Oh, no kidding. Wow. Yeah. Well, I met her and I was like, this is, this is a train you not coming knew. around again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Um, yeah, it definitely is. Um, you're right. That's sort of what I was into. I was exploring and kind of just bouncing around and, um, yeah, it wasn't until later on that I started to really focus a lot more. What did buckling down look like for you? Mm, I would say, I would say probably it, for me, it, as far as the photography goes, it really started, we, we had lived, uh, in New York city for a few years and then, um, we, we wanted to leave the city. Uh, where in New York were you living? Um, the last place we were living was in Murray, uh, Murray Hill. That's like first Ave and 36 or first, oh, yeah. First Ave and 36th right. street on the east side. Yeah, man. That's cool. Right? Do you know, do you know New yeah, York? Sure. Yeah, yeah. So it. She, uh, she had a great apartment. It was a beautiful apartment. It was like one of those just like modern, beautiful apartments and, uh, in a high rise and it's right on top of the Midtown tunnel. And so, and so it's like right at the river. And so basically, um, the view was great because we were, you know, cause, uh, Empire State is on 34th. So yeah. it's because we're on the tunnel, there's not a lot of buildings like on top of the tunnel where the entrance is. Right. And so it was kind of clear. So the view of the, uh, empire state was phenomenal. So it was just like this from the kitchen and the living room it was totally, totally magical. It was a, it was a neat, neat place to live. My mentor that I go visit, he's kind of like my adopted grandfather lives about 30 blocks North of that. And like okay. that they're just seeing the river and, and being that it, it's kind of an interesting thing in Manhattan. Most of the time you're covered with buildings on all sides, mm -hmm. but when you get to the river, you have this surreal experience of being on the edge of <laughs> civilization where there's these giant tall buildings and then you've got <laughs> these big open spaces. Right. Yeah. I liked New York a lot. I, um, I, actually, I was gonna say uh, the place—the place I lived right before I lived with her—was um, sort of a funny, crazy situation. Um, I had been living out in Queens. Actually, my dad had like moved to—he uh, was in maybe he was in Kew Gardens at the time. Yeah, I think it was Kew Gardens, and and so when I moved to New York, I like I just immediately like kind of moved in with him to just like kind of settle and figure things out and stuff, and so. Um, 
I started like working as a photo assistant and, um, a friend of mine who I kind of connected with, I made friends with her in New York, but I had, we had some connections through some other people in Switzerland, which is like a whole other story. But, um, her grandfather had an apartment down in, um, fifth Avenue and 14th street, basically. Uh, but yeah, between 14th and 15th. And, um, he was a retired like investment guy and he was an old, real old guy. And, uh, he was a hand, a horse handicapper. So he <laughs> seriously, so he would basically like handicap, which basically he, handicapping horses, you're, you're essentially raiding ho- horse, ra- uh, horses, race horses. And so he, um, he would put together all of these statistics to kind of come up with how the, how well the horses are going to do and horse. I don't know if you know anything about horse racing, but race horses tend to perform differently based on who they're racing against. So what other horses are in the race affects oh, how they that. perform. Okay. Yeah. I mean, obviously like their fitness and everything matters, but who else is in the race? So he would keep these really de- detailed records of what, uh, how the races performed against other horses. And he had this really complicated system, which I never completely figured out, but, but anyway, he had this apartment, um, a great apartment down in, um, 15th street and fifth Avenue, um, doorman building everything. And he only went into the city maybe like three times a week and to do his like horse handicapping thing. And he wanted someone to live there and, um, and to, to live there, but also to like help him compile the horse race data. Right. So like you'd get the race, like I would go pick up the racing form and then record in his books, how the horses did, you know, what the results of the races were. And it's totally like a weird thing. But, um, but my friend, uh, Janelle, she, it was her grandfather and she's like, yeah, he's got this apartment. It's totally fat. You should, you know, totally take this deal. Um, and so I go and meet with him and he's just like this, this like really old, like uh, New York guy. And he's just like, yeah, he's like. All right, I need you to make the mocks for me. You're going to make the mocks in the book from the form. You got to go pick up the form down the street. This is where you go to get it. You bring it home. You make the mocks in my books of the, of the horses. And the, for that, I'll charge you $50 a week in rent. Whoa. Right. Seriously. And I'll do so, whatever you need me to do for $50. I know, right? <laughs> that's the thing. It was like $50. That's just, I love that he put it that way. $50 a week. So, yeah. So, basically, I lived for a whole year on fifth Avenue for $200 a month. And, you know, I would like do these records for him or whatever the books and, you know, that was it. So I was, I had like a crazy time living there. Did you have a pull towards uh, betting on the horses yourself? You know, I never really like did it because like I'd have to go up to, well, I guess like, you know, the closest horse race horse track was Saratoga, but, um, I never went up there and I never like attempted to because basically like his, his data was not clear at all. I'm not even sure like where, how he like compiled it. Cause I would like compile this data and it was just like random marks, you know? And I would like literally have to like type out this stuff, this stuff, the names of the horses. I mean, it was sort of like a complicated thing to keep records for, but when would this have been, would this have been before the internet was uh, like easily, Oh yeah, this is like 98, 99. Yeah. Probably not 99. So you're helping handicap horses. You're living in New York City. 
you're uh, you're Crazy. starting to take photography more seriously at this point okay so yeah so then um so my my first wife well, she was my girlfriend at the time we um we were kind of like ready to move out of New York. Um, I sort of was, it was kind of wearing on me a little bit. Um, I mean, I'm sort of just kind of an outdoor guy. So I, you know, it's very intense there. It's a very intense place. And, um, I, I miss riding my bike. I I missed mountain biking. I mean, I had a road bike there, but you know, I really would just ride in uh, central park and stuff, but I miss mountain biking and, um, just camping and stuff and climbing. And so, um, we were wanting to move West. And so we kind of could have gone anywhere really. Cause, um, as long as it was coastal, uh, for, for both of our jobs, that was the thing. And so we kind of made the decision to move to San Francisco. And so moved to San Francisco in 2001. Um, man, and, what a time to be in San Francisco. Right. Yeah. So I went first cause she had some work stuff to figure to finish up. Right. So I went in like June of 2001 and she wasn't coming until like November, maybe, or December of 2001. So she was there when the trade towers were hit. And it was the most surreal thing because I get up in the morning and, you know, she, she calls me and she's like, oh my God, you got to turn on the TV. You know, so I turn it on and I see the first tower in, in flames, you know, the smoke coming out. And like at that point we hadn't like, we didn't, no one knew, you know? And then, um, yeah, I was in my college, my sophomore college dorm watching this, right? Oh, yeah. The same moment you're having, I'm having right. in my college dorm. Watching right it live. Yeah. And you're like what is going on? Yeah. You know? And then somebody on the news is like, they think it's some little plane like crashed in or something like that. Never even thought about terrorism. And then, and then the second plane hits. And then a little bit after that, they both come down and it was just, I mean, it was just terrifying and, you know, it's, it's just a horrible, horrible thing. It, it you know, even just talking about it kind of gets me a little bit. It's. And then you're terrible. out in, in San Francisco at the time. Yeah. And so I was, I was, I was concerned about once they sort of were talking about the terrorism stuff, I was like concerned about my dad and he actually, he kind of beat me to the punch. He called me. He was just like, I'm downtown. I'm okay. Um, cause he knew something bad was really happening. And, um, and then the lines basically, I, I think we had a brief conversation. He was okay. Um, I didn't know anyone else that were, that was downtown. Um, cause, cause, uh, Lauren was uptown in Murray Hill. So she was fine. But, um, he, you know, um, he was safe. And then after that, the lines basically were super busy and just jammed up, you know, but, um, but she, she went to the roof of the bill of our building in New York and, you know, saw like the whole thing from there basically. Oh man. Yeah. She, um, she's from her family's from New York. They're, they're pretty much all Long Island and they, uh, they were all okay. Her uncle, um, was worked in one of the, trade towers and worked in one of the um, towers. And so he crazy situation. He was supposed to be there that day, but was like late running late or something caught in traffic on long Island or something. And, you know, wasn't able to get in and that's why he's alive, but his whole office gone. That's one of the parts of that, that living in the Midwest and being in college, I had no connection with it, but to imagine that people didn't just lose the towers there. There were people that lost their families, their, their, all of their, everybody that they worked with, like 
it's easy to forget that when you watch it from the Midwest, at least the way that it was for me. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, just the idea that like, you know, her uncle, everyone he worked with in his office just was gone. I mean, just, I can't even like wrap my head around it, you know? Yeah. I mean, the only other time that something like that happens is like a plane crash where you happen to know everybody on the plane. Just not, just doesn't happen in regular life. Right. Right. And so if you're in San Francisco in 2001, that's before Salesforce has built giant buildings. That's, that's way before Facebook and, and, uh, is is building there it's yeah it's pretty early on but it was actually you know when we when we were looking for our first apartment there um we we had like a, an apartment broker or something taking us around and and she was like um she's like oh yeah it's like really chilled in the city now because the dot-com bust had happened in like 99 or something yeah like that. yeah yeah and so she's like so many people like left and it's like fewer people in the city it's super chilled right now you know it's really nice you know, and so, yeah, this was definitely like just the beginning of kind of Silicon Valley sort of coming back again. So any idea what your rent was in 2001? Where were you living? It's a good question. Uh, the first place we lived um, was in uh, inner Richmond, which is like um, out Geary. I don't know if you're familiar with. Yeah. So what were you doing for Fifth work at that time? Um, I was trying to uh, figure it out, actually, because when I was in New York, the last probably like year or so I was there, I was doing a lot of location scouting. And so I was like scouting for TVs and movies and scouting locations. And so it was nice because it was like kind of a, I was taking photos. I mean, it wasn't like creative photos or anything like that, but I was taking photos and, um, you know, I would, I would, you know, talk to the producer, the director and say, okay, this is what we're looking for, for this particular location. And I would go out and search for it. And, um, talk to doormen or put up flyers and stuff like that to try to find locations. And so, um, were you good at it? Um, I mean, it didn't take a ton of skill. It mostly just took like kind of persistence and just being like willing to like talk to anybody and ask anybody, you know, and just kind of, what are you asking them? You know, like if I'm, if so, for instance, Um, one of the jobs I did, I worked on a Woody Allen movie. And so I was trying to get, um, this particular location for Helen Hunt's character, which is sort of funny that I remember that, but it was like a very specific kind of thing that Woody wanted. It was like, he wanted an art deco, um, really nice, fairly big. He likes stuff like on like second or third floor. So it doesn't, doesn't have to go up so high. Like there were always sort of all these parameters that kind of didn't fit together. So it was sort of tough. So basically what I did is I went to nice. I knew it had to be like a certain era of building. And so I would go around, uh, you know, in nice neighborhoods. Like I, I, the one I found eventually that worked was, um, it was on park Avenue, like park in like 34th or 35th or something. And I literally like went to, the doorman and was like, was asking him, I was just like, Hey, you know, like, I'm the thing about it is, is when it comes to like movie stuff, if you can drop a name that somebody knows, Oh my God, you're like 90% in the door. I mean, you're, it's just as like opens up so many doors. It's amazing. And so, so Woody Allen would be a, so yeah, that's out. easy, especially in New York, you know, <laughs> like Spielberg um, or something. <laughs> exactly. So it's like, it's pretty easy. And, and so people suddenly like pay attention They'll, they'll suddenly be like, 
want to help you. <laughs> you know, if you're just like, Oh yeah, I'm doing this like show for so-and-so you never heard of. They just, you know, and especially in New York, like they don't, they're not impressed. So, uh, but yeah, you drop Woody's name and they're like, Oh, okay. What are you, what are you looking for? And so I would ask the doorman, like, you know, what, what are the units look like? Like I'm looking for this like art deco space and stuff like that. Do you have anybody that'd be interested in like renting out their space? And so the, uh, this particular building, the, the guy, the doorman was like, Oh, the, uh, that sounds like a good space would be the penthouse actually. And it's the guy that runs it uh, or the guy that owns it is actually, um, the head of the, um, the board, like the HOA board. Right. So, so the thing about these buildings is like, you could get like, a um, somebody that owns a unit and they're like totally into it. But if the HOA, the homeowners association of the building is not down for it, then they will just shut it down. So they, it's like, it, you have to get the approvals of these HOAs, which are often the bigger obstacle because Honestly, if they're smart, they don't want a movie going on. Because that's a ton of wear and tear oh on the elevators. and It's not even just the wear and tear. It's like just chaos. There's just equipment in and out all the time, uh, crew in and out all the time. I mean, a small movie crew is like 80 or 100 people. Like oh, a, really? Like a small one. And so, so, yeah. So, it's like you could have just so many people constantly in and out. And so, and that could go on for weeks. So, if you're like living there... And your neighbor, they're making thousands of dollars a day renting out their apartment for some movie or, or commercial or whatever. And you're not making anything, but you still got to deal with the inconvenience of the, the, the chaos, the people, the equipment, all that stuff. Um, then it's going to suck for you. Um, but this guy was, he had, he had a great apartment. It was a beautiful place and, um, it, the style was right and everything. And, um, he was really into it. And that was that thing. It's like, they're really into like getting a movie shot in their, their units. And, uh, plus we paid them like, you know, it's, it's, it was sort of normal rates. It was probably like 10, 10 grand a day or something. It was, Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, it's totally insane. It sounds like a lot, but and I then, mean, it is a lot, but, and then on top of that, you would have the cachet of this Woody Allen movie was shot at this, at this apartment, which well, that's, that's why they do it. Resale the, value. Well, that's the thing because like this unit, the guy that owned it, he was rich you know, it's like 10 grand. I mean, it's like, it's a real money, but it's not like what he cares about. It's not what ri the rich guy cares about. It's that he can tell his friends. Yeah. So-and-so movie was shot in this, in my unit, you know, whatever. That's like what it's really about. And that's why they put up with it because you know, it's a hassle. What's what happens is in that situation is Woody will, or uh, the production company will basically uh, go in, move all of their stuff out. Like they'll take Everything they own in the apartment, they'll move it out. They'll move it to storage and um, bring in their own furniture for the movie. With, so it's like set furniture, and which is for two reasons. One, they want a particular style. And two, they don't want to like destroy the furniture that the people own. Um, and so they basically move all their stuff out. And then they'll put the owner up in like a hotel nearby or something for the whole time. So they're basically not... They don't have to deal with the owner there. They don't have to deal with the owner's stuff there. It's just like the shell of the place that they're using. And so, um, so it's a hassle. I mean, it's definitely like an inconvenience, but like I said, they're into it. Did you like working on movies? I did. I, I mostly worked on commercials just cause there were more commercials going on at a time. But, um, 
Yeah, I did like it. I mean, I liked working in production in general. Um, it's sort of very sort of controlled chaos in many ways. It's like an army, you know, they just, this is like, okay, time to, time to move locations or time to wrap or time to set up or whatever. It's just like watching like, you know, 30 or 50 or 80 people or more on task getting something done and they all know what they're supposed to do. Like every single person there has a job. They know what their job is and other people don't do their job. Like, especially like if it's some, some union guy, like if it's some like lighting guy or electric or grip or something and you try to pick up cables, they will shut you down so fast. Like they'll just, cause it's like, that's their job and you're not authorized to do that job. So you have your job, you do your job. Even if you're sitting around doing nothing while they're really working hard, there's you, it's like, it's sort of frowned upon to like cross over. It's like, Oh, you know, Oh, let me help you with that electrical. It's like, no, don't touch it. And so it's, it's just like organized chaos there. It's just, it's a pretty impressive thing to see actually. So it was pretty fun. And I did some pretty cool uh, stuff and met some really interesting people. Movies we would know. So the Woody Allen movie was the only one. Let me think. Probably the only one, you'd know, and it wasn't one of his better ones. Uh, Curse of the Jade Scorpion. I didn't even know that. Right, yeah. I know. No one, no one saw but it. But now I'll go watch it. Right. Well, uh, don't blame me. It's not that great. <laughs> but the um, there was another movie I worked on. It was a. Th- it was like a teen thriller. Uh, this, it was like something about swimming. I don't even remember. But I think it had like Julia Stiles in it or something. It was like some up and coming like actress was in it. It was like one of those teen horror movies or something. And so I had to drive around Jersey for weeks looking for a school, like kind of a gothic looking school that would like fit the production designers. Well, we'll see if any of the listeners can figure out what the, uh, what the name of the movie is. Julie Stiles with some kind of swimming. I want to say, I think it's Julie Stiles. Yeah. Yeah. It's like something. I don't know. It's like swim fan or something, something like that. Yeah. No, I probably should IMDb it, but yeah. And then but, when you when you make the jump over to or I guess the commercials, is this something that somebody just happened to see your work and they knew that that somebody else needed work needed your services? How no, does that get set up? No, you don't really have work. I mean the 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 photography that you're shooting is like real. Um, it's there's no art to it. It's basically like in those days it was film. So what we would do is. Um, so let's say like I was scouting your house, right? And I would, I would say, okay, I want to shoot this room. I would shoot panoramas of the room. So I would just go like shot, 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 shot. And then I'll go to the other side, shot, 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 shot. So it's like a giant panorama, right? Well, like nowadays you just put it into like, you know, software and it will stitch it together. But back then it was, it was film. So there was a particular photo lab down on, um, it was like Houston and, on the West side, maybe like, I don't know, eighth Ave or something like that. Uh, but down near Houston. And, uh, it was this photo lab that was kind of, I, I, I think it was probably mostly location scouts. Funny enough. Like most of us were location scouts in there. We we're getting film processed really quick, getting prints made. And then we would take the prints, you know, they're just four by sixes and we would take them and put them together and tape and like actually have like, um, scotch tape which they had at this lab like they were set up for us we'd have scotch tape and we put these prints out and we'd tape them together to where they were um you know panoramas but they'd be really huge so you would fold them over and stuff and then put them inside of a manila folder 
And so, and then you would write on the manila folder, like what, it, where it was and everything and what it was for. And so you take that to the, uh, to the producer or the production designer or something, or a lot of times, like on a movie like that, where there's a big movie, you'll have a, um, like a head, uh, location manager and he would have several location scouts underneath him. And so I was just like one of probably like four or five or six scouts. And so I would bring them back to him and then he would take them to, um, to the director or the producer and stuff. And, and then they would decide, and then they would say, Oh, this is, we're interested in this, um, space. And sometimes like if you're experienced, the location manager might be like, okay, um, see what you can get it for. Like see, negotiate with them and see what you can get it for. Oh, wow. Whereas like, if it's like, if it's something small, he would do that. But in this case, like, like for the big apartment I found, like he would negotiate, uh, the location manager himself would do the negotiating, the negotiating. But like sometimes like on a job, like where it was, um, like a, just a TV commercial or something, I would be the location manager. Like I would be hired as either like, you know, the head scout or the location manager. And so I would do all the negotiating, you know, and try to get it for whatever price we had and so forth. And so, um, and so, yeah, it was all very analog back then. So the photo, the photography was not really like an issue. It was more of just like word of mouth. And back then like business was booming. It was pretty easy to get jobs. I definitely like got some jobs I probably didn't deserve that I did not do great on, you know? <laughs> um, but, uh, but they were just like, they needed people, you know? And so, um, but it was definitely like word of mouth. Um, you know, some producers looking for a scout and then somebody gets your name or something like that. So what was the transition like as you are making your career in photography and it's all print and then digital comes about and you're living in Silicon Valley? So I would say my career probably didn't really get going until after digital was really viable. I would say, um, I mean, I had shot plenty of film for jobs, but in terms of like doing like bigger commercial jobs, which is what I was after, um, didn't really come until digital was more, uh, just more viable. When I say viable, I mean that, um, the professional digital cameras were, uh, you know, high enough resolution and good enough quality that you could use them for the job. I mean, there was definitely a time when like, you could get a Canon or a Nikon or even Kodak. Kodak partnered with Nikon for a long time, but but basically, um, you could get these big giant digital DSLRs with like, geez, I don't know, five megapixels or eight megapixels. But the cameras would be like eight thousand dollars. Wow! And so they were like very expensive, not great um, at that point in terms of like resolution and color. And so, and then the computer processing had to be really expensive to even be able to look at them, let alone. Yeah. I mean the computer part, there wasn't like, it wasn't quite as, you know, Photoshop these days, the things you can do is pretty phenomenal. Um, back then we were just kind of limited to like, um, cleaning them up, you know, dust and scratches and stuff like that. It wasn't like doing a lot of compositing and stuff like we can do today. You know, back then you just didn't have the processing power for it. And, um, you know, for the higher end work during that time, the higher end work was still film. You know, they were still shooting on like 35 millimeter medium format or large format film uh, because the quality was just still way better. And so it probably wasn't until, you know, maybe like 
early 2000s that you could rent a pretty good DSLR and use it for most most things not everything but most things and so and that and so I rented for a while before I ever bothered buying one but probably because you were the age that you were it was easier to adapt you didn't have 20 years of film career to to be letting go of in order to get into this new medium I yeah mean, it, well it was much easier to adapt because um partly just because of my interest in computers and and my comfort with computers uh when i was at webster you know like we had i had a photoshop class like early on and and it was a pretty, I mean, they were maybe like version Photoshop version two or three, maybe, or something. So it was a pretty limited, uh, software. Um, and the cameras were even more limited at that time. We were, you know, Photoshop was a little further along than the actual digital capture. And so, um, you know, the digital capture was like more rare The for the for Photoshop, we were scanning film to put it into Photoshop. We weren't using digital native uh, cameras. And so um, the, I mean, I remember like being at Webster and somebody, you know, coming in with a, just to like show us like what they had going on. And it was, I think it was a Nikon body. So imagine like a big Nikon DSLR or SLR at the time. And then Kodak had made a capture chip for it, um, but was essentially the software, the hardware for it was just this big, it looked like kind of a motor drive that would go on the bottom of the camera, like the old school style, but really tall, like re maybe like that. And it was connected by a thick cable to like what looked like basically a VCR that would hang around your neck with a strap. And so that was the hard drive. That was what was capturing the actual uh, the actual photo. <laughs> so it wasn't like a little CF card. It was like this giant thing. So it was totally, and the only thing it was good for, it was such low resolution. I mean, seriously, it was probably like one or two megapixels, maybe. And it to was, make a comparison, what is your, how many megapixels is in a photograph? Uh, the camera I use now is usually about 50 megapixels. <laughs> okay. yeah. I mean, I use one that's also 24, but which 24 is still massive. That's big enough for almost anything. 50 just gives you a little more flexibility, basically. But, um, yeah, so very small, very, very sort of like, um, cumbersome. And it, those cameras were really only for like photojournalists that really wanted to be able to transmit photography, um, quickly, you know, back, back. It wasn't about the quality. It was about just getting the image shot and then back to, um, their, their magazine or newspaper quickly. And so, um, but it's, you know, it's continued to progress, so it's much better. So what was uh, prompting you, what was making you get better when you were, when you're progressing along in your career? In terms of, um, just, I mean, you're clearly an expert at making, I, when I look at your photographs, I see not only composition. So, uh, you know, we'll, I'll throw up a, a link or, or show some of your photographs on the, on this, but there's a couple of things that go on with your photography as far as I can tell. One, you you are very good with individuals, specifically mm. on bikes, I mean, mm. uh, which I don't think is a coincidence. <laughs> but then uh, but then the environments that you're in, so you ca generally capture a lot of people in an environment. And then on top of that, you're doing color grading that is better than real life. I mean, I look at some of your <laughs> photographs and I think, which some people might not think is great too. You know, like t sometimes I try to pull back a little bit on it, but, uh, cause there's a fine line between sort of too um, incredible and too, you know, and, and sort of like more flat. Cause 
the dim the the files that come out of the camera are very flat in general, um, and that's for a reason. It's it gives you you just get more information that way. But um, but yeah, I I tend I like color a lot. I like I like colors to be fairly saturated. That's sort of my my aesthetic. Whereas some people, their aesthetic is more desaturated. You know, that's sort of been a popular thing the last several years is sort of the more desaturated look. And well, I'm learning all of this now just just from the video of this podcast and, and other stuff that I do. And I feel like the amount that there is to know about not just color, you know, but also black and white and shadows and highlights and midtones. Mm-hmm. I feel as though I've been dropped out in the ocean and there's, <laughs> and there's, n- you know, nothing to grab onto. You just have to keep flailing around. But the people that are truly good at it, like the things that you're capable of bringing out in a photograph, I, I don't have a problem in the world about it. You know, if somebody said, is this photograph look exactly like the scene that we were just in? Well, that's just depends on how your eye works, right? It depends yeah. on how your what what your the aperture inside of your eye is is giving your brain. Right, right, and and it's not even a matter of like you know, sort of trying to go for reality, whatever that is. It's you know, there's a couple things about it. It's like one, it's like you know, we're often trying to kind of create a particular mood with the photography and and to evoke a particular emotion, which doesn't have doesn't necessarily have anything to do with. Um, how it really was, you know? Um, whereas, uh, the other part of it too, is like for what I do mostly is advertising. So advertising is not, yeah, they don't care whether close it looks to right yeah. exactly. Um, and so, you know, for instance, like the photography, um, I did for your wife, Anne. um, you know, we had the foggy morning that morning. It was, it was really great, but very flat. So the, the colors are muted and the colors are flatter and, um, and it's like, I like the fog, but at the same time, I want the colors to come out a little bit more. And so I bring up the colors a little bit while still trying to retain kind of a little more of the haziness of the fog. Um, cause you know, you see, so you can kind of remove that if you want to, to an extent. And so kind of getting that fine line between, you know, sort of that, that more moody, foggy look, but still have some like richness to the color, um, you know, it's, it's an aesthetic choice. It's, it's my aesthetic choice. It's not everyone's aesthetic choice. You know, you sort of, when you do this stuff, you kind of have to make decisions along the way. And, you know, sometimes those decisions are based on what the client's asking for, but a lot of times the client, um, either doesn't have a preference or I think most of the time people don't even know what yeah, they could I mean, want, that's, right? that's, like, a, that's a lot of it. I mean, it sort of depends like who your client is, you know, um, you know, a lot of times, most of the time I'm probably hired by ad agencies more than anybody else. And so I'm dealing with creative directors and art directors. And they do know. They do know. Yeah. That's, they're trained in that. So they're more specific, but, um, but yeah, a lot of times it's like, you know, they're hiring me, even ad agencies, like they're hiring me for my aesthetic. You know, that's sort of, that's sort of the goal of an artist in general is to make a living creating their art. Right. That's sort of like the ultimate, goal, which, which, you know, is not always the, it's, it change. it's different for every job. I mean, some jobs it's like definitely that and other jobs it's like less that, but as you get, as you sort of go through your career, if you're, if you're fortunate and lucky, like I've been to get to a point where you, um, are hired for your aesthetic, for your creativity, then, I mean, that's sort of the dream in a way, because it's like, you know, you can create, you can be creative and create your art 
and still make a living at it. People want to pay for it. And so that's, you know, that's a pretty amazing thing. And that's why, that's why I say, you know, I'm very, I mean, I've worked hard, but I'm also very lucky and fortunate because a lot of people, um, have not been as fortunate and are are as good or better photographers than I am. You know, it takes a lot of, to sort of make it in this business. It's a, it's a, it's a very sort of unclear combination of skill set, right? It's not just about who takes the best photo. You know, there's marketing involved. There's personality involved. It's like, how do you deal with clients? How do you deal with the business side? Are you really good with the numbers in the business side? Are you good with the budgets? Are you good at prepping for a big job? Are you good at post-production? You know, there's, there's all these like factors that play a role, um, where if you're not great in one, maybe you can make up for it a little bit in the other, in other ways. But and you that's, can't be too far behind. I mean, so I right. had, I mean, you have to, they all, all your skills has, has to be good. I had this, uh, painter from here in St. Louis on a few months ago. Her name was Heather Haymart. And she has this, her painting is, is phenomenal because it's got, uh, so much texture that it actually comes off of the canvas. It's like three dimensional. And, uh, to me, I was looking at her art and thought, this must have just carried the day. Once you learned how to do this painting and everybody saw it, you know, they must have just gone nuts <laughs> over it. And she was like, no, <laughs> like what I should have learned in school was half art and half business. Right. Because until you can find a way to sell your art, then then you don't get to live on your art. So and, that, and that was a big part of her saying that's that's the reason I get to live my dream is that I didn't focus only on my dream. I had to learn all these other things. That's actually a, a pretty big criticism of um, a lot of photo schools um, and art schools is that they're very about much about the art and my, and Webster, like my instructors were, um, you know, mostly sort of come, they, their background wasn't from the art side, you know, their background was from a more fine art direction. And so um, that was a big influence, but um you know, I didn't have classes really about the business of photography and a lot of art programs are criticized for that because, you know, these kids want to be able to make a living creating their art and they come out of school with a, a degree and a lot of, you know, skill and creativity, but not, does don't really know how to like market their work. And, you know, and nowadays it's even more sort of complicated you know it's it's more difficult now than it used to be even though it's like you'd think with the web and everything it's like easier as well no it's in many ways it's more it's more difficult because you've got a lot more competition the barrier to entry is so much lower that more people are just jumping in it's like oh they can become instagram stars just using their their you know their phone cameras and so how do you feel about that like it's got to be a little bit like ah. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's hard. It's, you know, it's like I've sort of been dealing with it for many years now um, because I would say most of my career, it's sort of like been in the digital age. And so we've been heading in this direction, you know, um, and it's sort of accelerated. Um, I have mixed feelings about it. I mean, part of me feels like, you know, um, I really love that I can take pretty decent photos with my phone, you know, like I like that, you know, and I've, I've gotten so much so many great shots. Cause I didn't have like, you know, my, my big camera with me, but I had my phone, you know, I always had my phone. And so like, especially like when I'm riding, you know, it's like my, some of my best photography, uh, biking photography tends to be 
phone photography just because it's the one that I've got. You know, and that's the best camera is the one that's in your hand, right? Yeah. So um, it's uh, so in that way, I, I like it. I mean, I, I'm, I'm into the technology in general. I've always been into the technology. I've always been in the computer side as well, which is helpful. Um, but at the same time, the the business is getting a lot harder for professionals. Um, you know, companies just don't really want to pay as much as they used to. And they don't really have to, frankly. I mean, there's just so many sources for them to get photography for so much less, you know, like, you know, they can go, they can go on Flickr and find some photo that works great for their ad or for, you know, their, their magazine story or something like that. And, you know, they reach out to the, the artists and they say, you know, we'll give you 50 bucks or hundred bucks for this photo to, to use it in our campaign. And to them, it was worth zero before. Yeah. Well, exactly. And this is some guy. He's like, he's like an accountant or something. He's just like, I just took it on my vacation, you know, like that's awesome. <laughs> you know, I'm a published photographer, you know, it's like, he's stoked, you know, and I, and I get it. And it's like, uh, so he wins, the company wins, but the professional that might've been able to charge that company a thousand dollars is not winning. You know, right. that's like, that's like, that's like me and, and my peers is that those sort of markets are sort of going away. Um, and so you, you do have to adapt in many ways I and mean, you kind of have to figure, okay, what's the type of photography that's always going to need someone going to need a professional, you know? Um, and it generally has to do with people, you know, people photography, whether it's everything from senior portraits and weddings all the way up to like the stuff that I do, which is like, you know, I do like a, a bunch of pharmaceutical jobs, you know, pharmaceutical ads where it's like the old people like riding their bike or something <laughs> like that, you know, because they're not like, you know, bleeding out of their ears anymore, but some, <laughs> some new, some new drug, you know? And so it's like, uh, yeah. So it's like stuff like that they're going to need professionals for, and a professional brings a lot to a, a big shoot, um, that, you know, an amateur just couldn't, you know, there's just so much planning involved and casting and locations and there's just like a lot of moving parts. And so, and being able to run a set and everything. So there's still a role for us, you know, for sure, but there's just fewer ways for us to make money in general. I'm struck by when, when you start to really learn about photography, you realize that the job of the photographer is, is a lonely one. Like the photographer that's good has to have the people skills that you're talking about because you have to, particularly if you're, if you're working with other people, mm -hmm. you have to be able to engage with them, but you're behind a camera. You have to have all these thoughts. You have to have all these observations in a single moment to snap the shot. And then once you go back and you're sitting with your computer, you're also alone sitting and reviewing and reflective it seems to me to be like i don't know like a memory painter or something like it, it really is for somebody that has to be able to the i think the only way you could be truly good at what you're you're good at is to enjoy being alone yeah it is it is definitely a very uh sort of loner-esque kind of profession in many ways because you are alone a lot of the times and i i talk about this with the other photographer friends um uh, my good friend Jay is a great photographer and we've sort of tried to kind of get groups of photographers together, um, regularly to just sort of meet and talk about photography and stuff. And, you know, it, it never really comes together just cause life and kids and whatever and, and time. But, um, 
And photographers are loners. (laughs) Right, exactly. Well, the funny thing is, it sort of depends on the photographer. Like the photographers we tend to hang out with and connect with are similar to us in that they, they like people, you know, I I like people. I like shooting people. Um, I get a lot out of shooting people. Um, but a lot of photographers, they don't, you know, and those guys, those are like architecture photographers, you know, they're product photographers. They're, they're by themselves all the time when they're shooting, they're by themselves. I mean, other than assistance and stuff. Whereas like, you know, most of my focus is shooting people. Like when I, you know, most of the jobs I get are about shooting people. You know, I shoot cars sometimes, but I used to shoot more cars. I don't shoot them as much as I used to, but I just have some old clients that I still shoot for. But, um, the shooting people is really hard. Like getting great stuff out of people can be really difficult. It's the most difficult really. Uh, but I think it's the most rewarding in the long run. It's the, it's definitely the most like exciting and sort of intense, in general. So, um, we do have to sort of have that, at least for my group, my, the people that I kind of like connect with, we, we have to be really great with people. We have to be comfortable with people and, you know, enjoy, but you can't really fake it. You have to like kind of be into people to an extent, um, and be able to be on set and just be like on, you know, it's like, you know what you want, you can communicate with people, you can get like little kids to like do what you want them to do. And people who don't want to be photographed, get them to do what you want them to do and, and get people to like bring, get the personality out and stuff like that. And it takes a lot of energy and, um, but then be able to do that comfortably and then be able to go sit at your computer for hours or days at a time retouching, um, by yourself. And so it, it is sort of like this interesting combination of, of skills you have to have, um, to be able to do that. Yeah. Which actually seems remarkably similar to me to cycling, right? Mm. People get into cycling because their friend was into it or they went in a group. But when you start doing long rides, you're out there by yourself or you don't have to be, but, but for the most part, like, so I did a few thousand miles in the, over the last couple of years and I found biking, cycling to be an incredibly lonely thing. And particularly if you're going to be good. Yeah. Yeah, that's very true. Um, sort of the better you get or the better you want to get at cycling, you sort of have to be willing to ride alone and train alone. It's a very, it is very lonely in that way. You know, when you're, when you're a kind of a wreck rider and, you know, you could just do like group rides all the time and that's, that's great. Um, and you know, I really like riding with other people. I would prefer to ride with other people, but if I'm going to get fit or any of my athletes are going to get fit enough to race, they have to ride by themselves. Uh, and there's a couple of reasons. One is, you know, you can't, if you're trying to ride five, six days a week, you're not gonna be able to get together. <laughs> to ride, right. Not many friends want to do that. Well, yeah. exactly. And especially like when the weather's bad, you know, it's like that sort of, the number of people that are willing to ride with you outside kind of goes down as it gets cold outside. Um, so that's one side of it. The other side of it is that, you know, to train properly, you know, you're doing intervals and stuff. You're doing stuff. You're very specific. Like what you're doing, you're not just kind of go ride and going to ride. You're being very specific about the intensity and the length of your ride. And so, you know, that does, that's just not conducive to riding with somebody else. Nobody else wants to, necessarily do the same intervals you're doing if they're not, at least if they're not racing or something. Um, and so you have to just get used to just riding by yourself. What makes a, what makes a cyclist fast? (laughs) That's a, a big question. Um, mostly desire. Wow. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, anybody can train and get fast, you know, it's like, does, you know, if your question is what makes a someone be able to win the tour de France? Well, that's like another question. Yeah. That's sort of another few answers because, you know, anybody can get like fairly fast and fairly fit at cycling. Um, if they just want to, if they just have the desire to, you know, it's pretty simple. I mean, um, but if you want to get to be world-class, if you want to get to be a pro or, um, you know, any kind of any level pro or even like, you know, just below a pro, but a, a strong amateur, um, you have to be able to put in the time. And I mean, that comes with a desire. Um, a great, a really good VO two max is sort of key, you know, to be able to process oxygen fast. Um, that's kind of the barrier for, you know, pros and top pros for sure is the physiological. Um, generally speaking, we, you know, this is sort of numbers are sort of thrown around, but for the most part, I think most coaches would kind of agree that it's probably 50% genetic, 50%, um, training is, uh, is what makes a, um, a cyclist pro or top pro level. And when you're talking about the, the training that people have to do, could you start in your twenties and still get to the pro level? Or do you have to have started cycling earlier than that? Yeah, no, I mean, you can start later, you know, it's the genetics help a lot. Um, you know, in that, in that, at that point, because as you're getting older, you're, you're fighting time, right? So by the time you get to 30, um, your body tends to kind of start reversing. So now it's, it's no longer, um, build, at least for men, it's no longer, um, building muscle, just, just trying to keep just it sedentary. It. Right. Yeah. So you're losing it. Right. So this is like, if you're sedentary, 30 year old male after 30, you're probably just gradually losing muscle. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, women tend to peak a little earlier. So, um, before that, but if you, are fit and you're training, then you can slow or reverse that, that, uh, degradation, I would say, um, up to a certain point, you know, once you start getting to like, you know, it, it does sort of accelerate. So it's like forties, fifties, sixties, then you're sort of fighting the inevitability of it, I guess. But, um, but no, it's possible to start later and, and plenty of people have started later. You know, they, they discover cycling for various reasons. Um, a lot of times it's from injury, you know, maybe they were world-class in another sport, you know, a lot of times you'll come across people who are great runners or great swimmers, um, and, or cross country skier, you know, other endurance sports. And, um, for whatever reason, they can't do that sport anywhere anymore. So they, they start cycling a lot of times for rehab and they realize, Oh, I'm like really good at this. And so, um, they start training. And so then they can, um, they can become world-class for sure. If they start late, um, you know, most people, and it also sort of depends too, you know, cycling road cycling, especially is very, it's very fitness based. You know, your success is much more fitness based than say mountain biking where technical skill plays a bigger role. You still have to have the fitness of course, but, um, you know, the technical skill, the neuromuscular action, um, is something that 
benefits greatly from starting at a very young age. So, you know, if you're going to be one of these guys that it's, you know, they're doing tricks and they're free riding and they're doing crank works and Red Bull Rampage, you know, they're doing flips and stuff. They're doing a lot of like acrobatics on the bike. You know, these guys, you probably can't start when you're 20 just because you just haven't built up the neuromuscular ability. Um, Can you do those tricks? No, I cannot do those tricks. No, I can do a little bit of jumping and I'm trying to get better at it. Um, and I do like jumping in general, but I came from more of a cross country mountain biking background, which was more about the fitness. I mean, I'm pretty good technically like skills wise. I'm decent, but that's cause I've just ridden for so long, you know, um, you just build a skill for it. But, but yeah, the more sort of skill based it is, the better off you are starting, starting at a very young age. Yeah. yeah. Because you're building those neuromuscular path or those, those yeah neuromuscular pathways basically you're sort of training your body to do a certain thing and you have more um body awareness um and you know just uh you're just sort of constantly repetitive repeating and repeating and repeating it and then it just gets to be you know when you when you have a complex skill that you're trying to learn the more you practice the more so many parts of that skill become um uh not mindless, but they're, but they're just like so habitual. They're Mm -hmm. ingrained. Right. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're basically just, um, you don't have to think about doing them. Your body just knows how to do them. And so then at that point you can work on higher and higher level skills. So it's like, you know, you've practiced enough backflips. Now you can like practice double backflips. You know, it's like at that level, that's kind of what those guys are dealing with. They're working on such high level tricks and stuff like that, where, you know, I would never flip, but you know, I would, I would like to get better at jumping and be able to do bigger jumps, but you know, and I'm sort of fighting time because I'm also, I'm getting older. And so, um, I don't want to get hurt either. Right. It's like, I got a family and I got to work. And so, yeah. Taking a um, jump when you're in your twenties or those adventures are easier when you're not, when you don't have as much to risk. It's so true. It's so true. And it's, you know, I, um, you know, my, <laughs> my wife is pretty funny about it. She's also a cyclist and a mountain biker. So she gets it, but she, um, you know, I recently, not recently, it was probably about two years ago. I was riding in California, Marin, where I, um, lived for a while. And, uh, riding with some old friends that I used to ride and trails that I'd ridden for years. Lots know. of hills out there. Yeah, there's a few hills out there for sure. And um, we were on a trail that I'd done a bunch of times. And it was on a Sunday. And the next day, on a Monday, for the next week, I had a job in um, Vegas or something, I think. And so I, it was a, it was a long job. So it was, it was good money. And, you know, I was like leaving the next morning. And, um, and I crashed, um, on the trail and it was just like a fluke, really weird fluke thing. And those are the ones that always do the, do the most, most damage, right? They're just like weird fluke things on trails that, you know, and are comfortable with. And, um, I landed, I landed on my knee and normally like I would, you know, I've endowed plenty of times that I went over the bars and wouldn't be a big deal, but my knee landed perfectly on a rock that was in the trail. Uh. So I tore, I didn't do any joint damage, but I tore basically the skin off of my kneecap. So it totally sucked. <laughs> so, you know, I go to Marin General and they stitch me up and everything like that. And I'm basically like in this like boot, you know, where you have to keep your legs straight for probably at least like a week or two because I didn't want to bust the stitches. And, um, and I had to miss that job and it sucked. Um, 
So I basically paid Marin General thousands of dollars. And I have good insurance too. And I still had to pay them thousands of dollars uh, for the bills. And then um, I lost thousands of dollars from missing the job. And my wife was pretty annoyed. Um, and she's like, you're from now on, you're wearing knee pads. And so she's right. I, from now on, I pretty much wear knee pads um, when I mountain bike, except when I race. But but yeah, I wear knee pads. And so like now when I go and I'm going to do some jumping or something, I've got like knee pads, I've got elbow pads. I think I might buy like a full face helmet eventually. <laughs> when I was in uh, Kenya, I had a buddy, we we were told to be really careful riding bikes, but you, you know, you, there are two options there, walk or ride a bike. And I had right. a buddy that uh, took a spill on his bike and cracked his helmet all the way through, which it's actually how those helmets are designed to work is mm-hmm. to crack. But I saw that, that helmet, and I was like, I'm never getting on a bike without one of those. <laughs> yeah. But then later, I did fall. And there's almost like a, PTSD is too strong of a phrase, but it like after I fell, then for the next, I don't know, two or 300 miles that I, that I rode, I was always nervous about falling. In fact, anytime I get on a bike now, I have a lot more fear of it. When you're, you're in the coaching world, you've got people that are trying to go really, really fast once they wreck, is it like falling off a horse where you got to, you got to, Hey, get right back on there. Cause if you don't get back on, you won't get back or they, they have the desire strong enough that they don't have that problem. Well, it depends on the situation. Um, you know, concussions are a really big deal. Um, and we take it very seriously. Um, you know, sports, contact sports, especially, um, and you know, cycling is not a contact sport really, but it better not be, I know, right? it's like, you don't want it to be, but you know, traditionally like, they, you know, concussions were not taken very seriously. It was just like, Oh, you just got your bell rung, you know, like go back out there, you know, especially in football and stuff. And so, um, it's taken a lot more seriously now, even minor concussions. And so if, if somebody goes down, the first thing is, is like, Oh, did you hit your head? We look at the helmet. Um, if the, if they, if they're like, no, I didn't hit my head. This is how I landed. Um, you know, we check the helmet, it looks totally clean and everything. So we can assume that they did not, um, hit their head, get a concussion. Um, then we try to get them back out there as soon as possible. Yeah. You don't want them sort of obsessing about the, the crash. Now, if it's a serious crash and they're really hurt, then no, we wouldn't just push them out there. Um, and most racers, you know, they're going to be pretty, you know, most racers have crashed enough to where they're going to get back on the bike and keep racing or keep going, keep riding if they, if they can, you know? Um, but if there's any, any like concern whatsoever that there's a concussion, then, then they're, they're done for the day. And then we sort of evaluate after that. And, um, you know, the thing about the concussions is it's like, it just doesn't take much these days. And the more you have them, the worse they tend to be. Um, you know, there, I should say the effects of them tend to be, Worse, yeah, they worse. seem to compound by orders of magnitude, right? Yeah, yeah, they do. I mean, I have an athlete that he um he had a pretty bad concussion um a couple of years ago and he he was out for a while. I mean, weeks, maybe even months, he was out for a while. Um and cuz he had all the symptoms and everything and and then um this year he, you know, probably about 3 months ago, I would say. Um, he was like getting out of his car or something and just hit the back of his head on the door jam, you know, of his car, just like a stupid little thing, just kind of just like bumped it. But it was the back of his head, which, where he had hit before, where he had the concussion before, had the impact before. 
And it took him out for since then. I mean, he, I would say he's only, he's not a hundred percent yet. I mean, he's riding, but he's probably just getting back to like significant training this week. It took him that long. And this is a fit, fit collegiate. Oh, and those are the people that, uh, when you're fit, and then every single day you're not riding. You're like a border collie that I didn't know. get jogged. And it's so true. Plus, he works at a bike shop as a mechanic, so he's like seeing everybody on bikes all the time. <laughs> so it's it's hard. And his and his uh, girlfriend is a um, pro triathlete, and you know she's exercising and super fit too. So he's oh, and the other thing too is he's like he's a great cross racer, and this is cyclocross season, so he's like missing a lot of the season. So do you do you find that right now because triathlons seem to be growing so rapidly that you find people that are saying, hey, I, I need to work on this this bike section because I'm a, I, you know like Anne, she was a swimmer, she knows how to run, but the bike is the chance you can either fall way behind or you can make mm-hmm. up a bunch of ground. Um. In terms of like triathletes or are just you, like, yeah, are you training triathletes? Or you I don't have any thing? triathletes. No, I, I, I run a little bit. I'm just, I'm sort of getting more into running than I used to in terms of like learning how to train it. Um, swimming, not at all. I just don't have the background in swimming. Swimming is a very no, but I meant do you, are people in the in, coming to you saying? Well, I was going to say that's that I haven't had any triathletes coming to me for that because I don't advertise it for try. Um, but I think if I had one coming to come to me, I would probably say, I could train you on the bike, but I'll send you to somebody else for the swim or the run at this point. What, what do people learn when a coach comes to teach them? I mean, like I know how to ride a bike. I know how to make the pedals go round and round. Well, you know, a lot of times, most of the people that come to me, they sort of, they're looking for fitness and training, you know, training plans and specific workouts and everything like that. They're not always thinking about, um, uh, skills, you know, technical skills. And that's one thing that's really nice that I bring to the table is that, I mean, I'm a certified mountain bike instructor, mountain bike skills instructor. And so I actually have training for that. And I have a little bit of training for road skills, which I didn't used to think was like really a thing, but, um, I was, uh, I was getting some, uh, coaching certifications from, um, USA cycling in Phoenix in January actually of this year. And, and they, we, they took us through like a road skills clinic. Um, and it was great because it was like, oh yeah. Cause I, you know, I just been riding for so long. I just didn't think about it, but there's so many things, a um, a roadie can learn on the road. You know, mountain biking is sort of obvious. It's like really rocky and rough and technical and difficult, but, um, road, you wouldn't think about it, but there's so many things you can learn, whether it's like obstacles in the road or being able to like look behind you without like steering off course, um, being comfortable kind of just in close quarters with people. A lot of people are not super comfortable in like, Oh, I hate it with groups. I hate it. That's actually like, it is not fun for me to ride in groups. I like riding with my wife, my father-in-law, but that's it. That's what we do is, uh, when I, when I, I teach road clinics sometimes. And so when I teach the clinic, one of the things we do is we do some work in the grass where you're like banging up against people. You're like shoulder, shoulder, bar to bar so that you can get comfortable. It's like, if you fall over, you're just in grass. So it's not a big deal. And we do these exercises where we'll have like two people riding side by side, this big ground, uh, big grid, right. Just around the edge of the grid with cones and stuff. And so the guy on the inside will have his, have his arm around the guy on the outside. And so we'll just ride one handed and then we'll add somebody. 
So then they're both like holding. So it's just three. Oh my God. And then four people and then five people. And you can, as many as you can like put on there, you can do it. But you imagine like the person on the outside, whether it's like the fifth or the eighth person, it's pretty comical actually. It's a pretty funny thing, but, um, you know, they have to move on the outside much faster than the one on the inside. And so there's just a lot of like banging and people are sort of like bumping into each other, but it's a great drill because it sort of shows you that you can, you can bump shoulders with somebody and not fall over. You can bump bars with somebody and not fall over. It doesn't have to be like, you know, this kind of like very delicate sort of thing when you're in a riding in a group. That would be really valuable for me because I, I would say like in a car, I don't have road rage. I'm like, Hey, merge, I'll get up ahead. You know, I've driven East coast, West coast doesn't bother me, but I get into those groups and all I feel is rage around <laughs> other people. And it's probably more fear than mm. anything else. And, yeah. and in particular, like, you're like, I don't want to be embarrassed by falling down. I don't want to, I don't know. So if you can train that out of somebody, it'd be really, really healthy. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it's practice, but, but I, the, the stuff in the grass is really great because, you know, you're right. People are sort of like, they're tense and that kind of exasperates the problem. And so you just try to get them comfortable. It's like, listen, like I can like push on you on the bike and you're going to be okay. I can like shoulder you and you're going to be okay. Um, you can like recover from that. And part of that also is just sort of practicing like, what happens when you do get a little shoulder into you or bars into you? Can you, can you sort of bounce off and recover from that? You know, that, that takes skill and that's, that comes from practice, but, um, doing that. And then in the drill in the clinics will also teach like cornering skills and stuff like that. So you kind of, people can take turns better and, and just get used to kind of like difficult, loose terrain. But the close quarters thing is a big deal. A lot of people, that's like a lot of people's fear for sure. And when you start racing, that's, you have to sort of deal with, deal with that because you're very tight and you're at high speeds. I mean, you're taking high speed corners and you're inches from people. Yeah. What's the name of the St. Louis race they do around here? It's in the summertime. Well, there's gateway cup. Yeah. Yeah. Man. That's in the fall. Well, that's like, uh, Is it already Labor passed? Day weekend. Yeah. Labor heard... Day weekend. Yeah. Yeah. That, it just happened. That is fun to watch. I, yeah, I, I, I personally have no interest in doing that, but it, <laughs> like the sprint ones when they're coming around the corner, I mean, yeah. That is as close to, I don't know, like uh, controlled chaos is a phrase you used before. That's it's yeah. that's what it is. Yeah, it's it is pretty like scary too. And then you know, I've I've raced a ton of crits and I've raced in the Gateway Cup plenty of times, and it's it's definitely. Oh, you've raced in that. Oh yeah, yeah. There's um, you know, there there's there's several categories. So there's like the pros and then all the way down categories. So you work your way up the categories as you get better and better. Um, and what category were you in? I'm in cat four actually, which is, uh, the lowest, the slowest category is cat five. So I am in a fairly slow category. Um, it's one of those things that's like, I've never really been that as into the crit racing as the mountain biking. And so I've definitely never, I, you know, I just kind of need to like really buckle down and focus on training to like get the points necessary to move up to cat three. Once you get up to like cat two and one, so it's basically like five, four, three, two, one, and pros and ones are sort of, uh, pros is just above one. So it's like, um, the pros and the ones race together a lot. The pro one twos race together a lot, but, um, to really be a good cat one or cat two, you got to dedicate a huge amount of time to it. Just a lot of ride time. And so, I would be an okay, probably cat three once I got up there, but you got to build up points. You got to get podiums. You got to get wins and stuff like that. 
Um, it really is like year. the belt system. I mean, there's yeah, five. Yeah, there's for five sure. right there. Yeah, because you don't want to, you know, you, you want to race against people that are your same level, more or less, um, for sure. But, I, 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 when I think about you describing mountain biking, to me, the only experience that I have with that is when people put on their GoPros mm. and they ride on the on the terrain. And to me, that's like um, taking my worst fear, just the fear <laughs> of heights, and then putting it on two wheels. Yeah. Are you out on terrain where you're where there's an edge on the side and you can mm. go down the side of the mountain? Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah, I've been up to some pretty gnarly trails before. Yeah, it's, you know, that's where sort of having been uh, a mountain biker for so many years really helps me in that technical side. So like, for instance, like I was saying, like the road um, is much more of a fitness based kind of endeavor as far as racing goes. And you need some technical skill, but you need more technical skill on mountain biking. So, so for instance, like, I mean, it's also my preference mountain biking a little bit more. So I've worked harder at it, but in terms of, um, you know, in mountain biking, I'm a cat. I'm a cat one, so I'm at the top of the amateur. You're a black belt, right? Then, so I'm, a, the- I'm a black belt. I'm not a pro. I'll never be a pro, but um, I'm sort of near the top of the the amateur rank. I'm at the top of the amateur ranks, right? So, and it's not because of fitness. You know, I've never had like incredible fitness. Um, it's really just because I've got a decent technical skill because I've done it for so long, um, and also. You know, for, and the way that sort of translates into like doing well in races is like, let's say, um, you know, there's like uphills and downhills and the uphills, somebody who's super fit would beat me on the uphill. Um, but when we get to the downhills or even some of the rolling terrain, um, I'm not only faster on that terrain, I can recover on that terrain. So when you get somebody, especially like a roadie or someone who doesn't really have a lot of mountain biking experience, but they're super fit they'll get on a mountain bike and they'll be very strong on the uphills, but on the downhills, they're gripped. They're like white knuckled, you know, they're, they're not that fast, but they also just, they're spending a lot of energy. They're wasting a lot of energy. Right. So whether it's like fear or just like, they just don't know how to flow quite as well. Um, they're not able to recover on the downs like I can. So, cause I can stay loose, catch my breath on the downhills. And so that gives me a little bit more of advantage even, um, than just the, a little bit extra speed on the downhill. So that's sort of where I've been able to make it work on the dirt, but the road, yeah, I'm just not a super like fit guy in general, you know, at least in that like world. I mean, compared to like, Oh, I saw some riders, photographs but... of you riding. You're jacked when you, when you want to be. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> my wife would laugh if she heard you say that. So, um, <laughs> when, when does somebody, at what point in their career, do they start in their cycling career? Do they decide I'm going to go out and get a coach? Um, if you're, if you're like pretty young and you're coming up and you're really focused, like if you're in like junior high or high school and you are fortunate enough to be in a town that has some racing, or maybe your parents are into racing and you start getting into it. And you start getting serious and you start doing well and you start having aspirations. Then you might say to mom and dad, like, I'd really like to get a coach so I can like get better, you know, um, maybe even get like a scholarship to a, to a college that, af- that offers it for, that has a cycling team. And that's sort of like one of the first 
places they'll start thinking about getting a coach. Um, especially if like, even if the parents, a lot of times the dads will be, um, experienced mountain bikers, um, and they can do a lot of like training and stuff and coaching, but there gets to be a point where you kind of need someone a little more objective. Um, and that yeah, for sure. The that's race. in everything, right? Right. Exactly. So, um, but, but that's sometimes where it starts as that's when kids will, if they really have aspirations, they'll get a coach then. Um, it's probably not that common after that until people are sort of getting to be like middle aged, like, well, not even middle age, maybe like late thirties or late forties where like, maybe they have kids already and they, or the kids are getting older and they sort of have more time to train. Um, and then they start thinking like, I want to, I want to train harder. I want to train better. I want to do better in the racing, the local race scene and I need somebody to help me. And so, um, you know, it, that being said, I mean, I've got literally the range of athletes I have right now, and I've got about 10, 10 athletes. The age range is literally 18 years old to 70 years old. Oh, wow. So okay. it's a pretty big range. Yeah. And the older gentlemen, um, and a few other people, they're, they're just wanting to get fit again. You know, they're, they used to ride more or they maybe they're just getting into riding and they just want to get fit on the bike. And so they're kind of, um, not interested in racing. They're just recreational riders. They just want to get fit again, but they want somebody to kind of help them get, um, have a plan to do it right. Have a plan. Yeah. I mean, actually the 70 year old, he's, he's, uh, he's really great. He's, he's got some ambitions. He wants to do some like big, big rides, big events, you know, um, at his age. So, um, he's really into it, but, um, and, and what makes you a good coach? I mean, you, you, you're up at the top, you're black belt in the mountain bike <laughs> racing, but, but, you know, there's a big difference between the rider and the coach. What yeah. makes you a good coach? Well, you know, that's a good question. I mean, I'm still pretty new at, you know, coaching in terms of like, um, having like a lot of clients that I don't, you know, I wasn't friends with originally or something like that. And, you know, I think your sales game paying, needs to go up on clients. your coach. <laughs> I know, <laughs> I know. So well, modest. you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things where experience counts a lot in this business. Um, you know, but I would say what my focus really is when it comes to coaching athletes is, you know, the training side of it and, and the workouts and everything and sort of the, the metrics of like power and heart rate and stuff like that. I mean, I, I take to that pretty easily, like the technical stuff I take to pretty naturally. Um, and the analytics and stuff on the, on the computer. Like I, I, I enjoy that. I get a lot out of the numbers. You're so good at it from your horse handicapping days. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. The horses. Um, but that's, you know, a lot of that can be sort of like that stuff can be learned and kind of practiced for sure. I think one of the things that really helps a coach be a really great coach is being really, really empathetic to their athletes and being, and going out of their way to really kind of be in touch with like what's going on with them, you know, because it's kind of a real, I think to be a really good coach, you really have to listen to your athletes a lot. And listen to them, not just like what they're saying, but like what they're not saying, you know, kind of try to be in touch with like who they are, what their motivations are, um, you know, like, do they sound kind of down? Like what's going on with them? Like, you know, kind of trying to learn their personalities and figure out, you know, like, is it, can I give him a hard workout? Like, is he, is his headspace right where I can give him some brutal intervals 
or does he just need a fun ride? Like, does he just need like kind of to go out and just have fun and not be so regimented, you know, and kind of trying to be in touch with that, I think is like super important because it's really easy to push people too hard, you know, to where they just get burnt out or something. You know, that's, that's like the thing I worry about the most is, is both overtraining, overtraining syndrome, um, but also just mentally wearing them down. You know, it's really easy to assign. It's, it's, unfortunately, it's really too easy to assign people really brutal workouts, you know, like really hard intervals that just wreck them. And some people can take to it. Some people sort of thrive on the challenge of it, but other people, um, you can't give them to them all the time or something. You've kind of got to like think about when you're giving it to them. And so, yeah, I mean, I completely appreciate the empathy part and, and there feels like there's something different with cycling, cycling, maybe in running because it's just so pure that it's just you, mm-hmm. right? Like, you, yeah, you're racing against other, other bikes and, and, uh, but like, your cadence is you. You can look down at the numbers anytime you want, see your speed. You can see, am I getting my 80 revolutions a minute? And then, you know, you know for a fact whether or not you're in a hard enough gear. And, yeah. and you can always make it easy mm-hmm. if you want. So the only way you get better is if you focus on suffering on purpose. Right. And I think that that's, <laughs> a, that's a real challenge. It is about suffering, yeah. And, and suffering takes practice. You know, suffering is not you're sort of, you don't, you're not sort of like born with an ability to suffer. I mean, some people sort of have a genetic disposition that they actually can suffer more than other people, like all things being equal. Um, and I think a lot of pro cyclists, top pros are sort of like that, but it also takes a lot of practice as well. Um, you know, they've done tests actually on pro tour riders, you know, Europe, European top riders, racers, and they've determined from those, they, they've sort of tested their ability to withstand pain to withstand suffering. And, um, usually it has to do with the, with the way they measure it is usually like hand and ice cold water. Like how long can your hand, can you take it? You know, how long can you handle it? And, um, that's like one of the things they'll do in a clinic, clinical, uh, clinical trial or clinical, uh, research setting or whatever study, I guess. And they found that pro tour riders tend to have a higher pain threshold, uh, mid to late season, whereas compared to beginning of the season. And the reason is, is because mid to late season, they've been suffering all year long. They've been feeling the pain of racing, the pain of s- crashes. They felt the pain of intervals and more crashes. And whereas when they're coming out of the winter and they haven't been training as hard or racing as hard or anything like that, they just have not sort of practiced the suffering, feeling the pain. They haven't felt the pain that they'll feel on a regular basis in July or August or something like that. And so it's because it takes practice. So you've got to get used to it. That seems like uh, a message of hope to me <laughs> yeah. because it, it says like, Hey, the more that you can withstand, the more you'll be capable, you'll be strong enough to withstand in the future. It, it, it actually will Absolutely. become easier. And that's how I create a lot of the workouts I give people or, or assign a lot of the workouts is I sort of try to think like, okay, what time, what's the time of year? Um, where are they in their sort of suffering, um, of the, of the whole year? Um, and what, you know, technically, you know, it's like, I could look at their, um, I could look at their numbers, their metrics and say, okay, they should be able to sustain 350 watts for a minute, right? The numbers say it, 
But on at the same time, I can look back and say, okay, well, they haven't done that in probably a few weeks. They've either like had some injury or it's off season or for whatever reason, or maybe their just mental space has been like off or whatever. So maybe if I throw that at them, technically they should be able to do it, but it might just be too much. It might just really kind of recommendally or just, because the thing about it is, it's like, you're also sort of balancing like their, their confidence, you know, their ego. It's like, you want them to have confidence. So if you just like keep hammering them and they just, it's like, they can't finish workouts or they can't finish intervals, they're going to get really down. And so you need to give them stuff that's like hard and challenging, but doable, you know, stuff that's like they can accomplish. I mean, once in a while, it's like they won't hit the numbers and that's fine. But if it's like every time they just can't get it done, then you've got to pull back and say, okay, I'm not going to give them that 350 for a minute. I'm going to give them 300 for a minute and, and get them to do that. It's just like, get them used to the pain again, get them used to the intervals again, um, get them some confidence back, knowing that they can do that and they can feel good doing it. So that's, that's sort of a lot of the part of coaching that I think is, takes like a real, um, I think empathy is a big part of it. I, I think that, you know, just really listening and paying attention to your athletes is huge, you know, cause anybody can assign workouts. I mean, you can buy a training plan. Like, it, you know, like they don't hire me really for the training plan necessarily. They might in the beginning, they might, cause they might think, Oh, this is what I need. But in the end, you know, what they really need is they need to like be texting me like three times a week, asking me questions or talking to me about their race coming up or something like that. You know, like that communication is like huge. I never really thought about the power of observation and how important it would be for a coach because oh, yeah. it's, you can't really ask the student, what is it that you need? I mean, they might know to some extent, but the real thing that they need is probably hidden from them. So it's kind of an interesting parallel between that and being the observer that can be a photographer. Yeah. I, I think there's definitely some parallels and I don't think it's an accident that I, you know, I think I can do well in coaching um, because I think there, there are those parallels and sort of being more sensitive to other people and more sensitive to their, what's going on with them and their emotions. And a lot of that is just paying attention. I mean, a lot of it's just like taking the time to pay attention and listen. Um, but I think if I was sort of, you know, too impatient or just, or I didn't like people or something, or I was, you know, just people didn't interest me or something. I just don't think I would be as good, you know, cause it's like, you can be a genius at the metrics and the numbers and there's, and you know, I've, I've, I've met coaches and I've, I've seen coaches that, um, you know, speak at conferences and stuff that when it comes to the numbers, they're geniuses. I mean, they just, they're really great with the software. They're great with the metrics. Um, but they're not great communicators necessarily. And they're not very, you, they're almost like, uh, you know, um, I sort of, I sort of use my wife as this, uh, as this analogy sometimes, cause she is a, uh, she works in the computer world. So she knows code and everything like that and various different codes and stuff like that. So she's very technical. She knows the technical side, but she's got, um, a very, uh, a great personality, very outgoing, very warm, very, um, great communicator with people. And so her real skill is not, coding as you know as a developer her real skill is sort of translating the coding to regular people you know to clients so she's often been had jobs where she was sort of a go-between between the developers who don't communicate very well with humans 
and people who are the, the customers or the clients or something like that, that are trying to get something done in the code. And so she has that ability and that personality to where she can communicate really well and, and work with, she works with people very, very well. And so, um, that's where I sort of hope that I bring to the coaching is that ability to kind of cross over to like understand the technical side of it and really like get deep into the number part of it, but then also like kind of pull, be able to pull back and say, okay, what's, what's going on with them? Like, why are they not hitting these numbers? Like, you know, is it nutrition? Is it lack of rest or is it, you know, they're stressed about their, their job, you know, it's like, they're stressed about their wife or their girlfriend or something like that. You know, I mean, that's, that's the other thing you sort of have to take into account um, when you're coaching cyclists or really like any athlete is that there's, there's, there's training stress, right? There's stress that you get from intervals or training um, long rides or whatever. It's the, um, it's the physical stress that causes the adaptation on your body, right? That makes you stronger as an athlete. And that's one kind of stress. And I think, I think coaches, some coaches will sort of, only consider that kind of stress, but you can't, you have to consider all of the other life stress. You have to consider, well, what's going on with the personal life? What's going on with their work life? What's going on with their kids? What's going on with their dog? Like what's going on with like all of these parts of their lives create stress and how it can, can cause stress. It's all the same. It's all stress and all has to be taken into account when it comes to the training. The training has to be uh, adjusted to an extent based on the life stress, not just the training stress, because it all plays a role. And it seems like there's an interesting dichotomy there because many people exercise, they, they became passionate about exercise when that gave them relief from their other stress. And then if you start competing now, this thing that was a relief for you <laughs> now is the, the, one of the things that's causing compounding stress. And then as we were talking about before, once you get out of your 20s, <laughs> there's a whole lot more stresses on your life that, right. that tear you in different ways. This is a very yeah. interesting to think about a coach having having to be so observant about stress. One of the things that happens when you're an athlete is that you can have dreams of wanting to win the Tour de France or, or being capable of, of doing a trick or being up on a mountain. But as a coach your dreams are only manifest through your athletes. Yeah. So how do you calibrate your dreams in, in being a coach? Well, I mean, that's one of the parts about being empathetic because when you can sort of connect with your athletes, um, on an emotional level, you get as, as much, sometimes more joy out of them accomplishing their goals than if you accomplish your goals. And that sort of sounds like, like almost maybe cliche or something, but it really is true. I mean, it doesn't I have sound to say, cliche to me at all. Yeah. You know, it, cause it's, I would say like when I've, I mean, I've got on the podium, I've won races, I've, I've had some success on the bike, right? Like competing against other people. And that always feels great. You know, it's, it definitely feels great. Um, but I have to say the times that I probably feel the most joy is when I've helped an athlete, accomplish their goals. You know, there's something just a little more, I don't know. It's like a little bit bigger. It's a little bit wider. It's bigger than me. You know, it's like, it's like I'm a part of something that's a little bit bigger, even though it's just like me and one other person. Right. But it's just like, and having that joy 
of the of the of the goal met or the win or whatever the podium and it's also uh that somebody else is having the same joy right and so it's like that that communal joy is greater the the sum is sort of the the communal joy is sort of greater than the sum of the two right it's like it's just bigger i mean I, I actually think you're describing i have a good friend named rob long he goes by plantimals on twitter he has this term that uh, he uses called intersubjectivity and he talks about i've talked about it before on the podcast like that at its core is the meaning of life it is you're a primate i'm a primate we just experience something together yeah. And that if I had only experienced it by myself, then I can only hold that experience with me. But the fact that we both had it and now we shared some some level of of seeing the world through each other's eyes or feeling that conjoined joy that yeah. therein lies one of the purposes or point of life on yeah. some level. Yeah, exactly. You know, I'm sure there's like some scientists or anthropologists or something be like, yeah, no doubt. But, you know, it's it's. It's so true because I, it's just so much bigger when it's, you know, more than one person, I think. And the more people that are sort of a part of it makes it, you know, um, just bigger, I think, you know, and more and more satisfying in many ways, you know. Yeah. And that's I honestly like I, I it, and so it's not really a matter of like, oh, kind of like putting my my uh goals or race goals on hold or something. I mean, I still race and compete, so I, I can still have my, um, my, my successes, but I mean, honestly, since, since I started coaching, I've enjoyed the successes of my athletes more than my own, you know, man, what a great so, thing to say. What a, I yeah. mean, like to, to have that experience. Yeah. It, it's pretty cool. I mean, you know, like I, I really, I, you know, I really try to for the marketing, I try to be good with the social media and keep up with it and everything. But, um, you know, I always try to post when one of my guys like accomplishes their goal or gets on the podium or something. And I love that. I just, it's like, you know, it's, it's just great. You know, I have one guy, he's a, he's a cyclocross racer. So he didn't start racing this season until cross season began. And, you know, I only had a chance to probably train him for a couple of months leading up to cross season. And, and he does his first cross race and he just crushes it. He just, he was racing single speed too. So he's just a beast, crushes it, just destroys everybody. He was, he was so stoked, man. He like, he like crossed the finish line. I was just like, yeah. And he, and, you know, he gave me the biggest hug and he was just like so excited and so stoked because it just like all came together. He's like, it's like he knew he was fit. I mean, he knew it was like probably some of the fittest he's ever been, but having it sort of like all come together like that in the first race of the season. Like, yeah, that's like a great feeling. Yeah. Know? Shared joy over, shared joy, over yeah. accomplishment that required suffering. Right. I mean, it's essentially, you know, I don't know how familiar you are with the hero's journey, like the, the Joseph Campbell kind of, yeah, I haven't read it. So it, the core of his philosophy is there is a character that is often overlooked in the hero's journey and it's the mentor in all the stories that we care about. There's always the hero meets somebody that says, mm -hmm. let me guide you on this path. And then I'm, I can only take you so far right. and I can help try and get you to confront the thing that you want is always going to come in conflict with what you need. Mm -hmm. And the mentors guiding words gets them to choose what they <laughs> need as opposed to what they want at the, at the critical moment. And I mean, it sounds to me like that's what you're describing is that is that you are helping people go on their hero's journey and coming out on the other side by 
on their own strength, but through the, Hey, let me show you, you can do this. Let me help you get, get through these ordeals. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very, it's very true because there's, there's so, so often ordeals that don't have anything to do with cycling too. You know, like one of my guys, he's, he's really struggled this season, um, to, to just get fit. And he's, um, you know, he's had some like other health issues that he's kind of been, every time he starts riding his bike, he has some other health issue. And so he's been really struggling, but he just, he keeps fighting, man. He just keeps like coming back. And it's like trying to get back on the bike and, you know, I really admire him for it. And it's, you know, we just talk about, talk about that stuff and, you know, what's going on with that stuff and everything. Like sort of, you know, not really even about cycling. I mean, it's it's like the goal is like getting back on the bike, but he's got to get through these other things first. And so, yeah, that sort of like whole, whole life part of the coaching. I, I didn't really like kind of realize like how much of that was involved until I really started coaching, I think, because you just don't know when you're training yourself and you, it's like, you learn the numbers and the metrics and everything. And like, periodization and all that business. It's like, it's great. It's super interesting, but it's not the, it's not the emotional connection with people. It's not the, the, the sort of bigger connection with people beyond the stuff. And plus I just love sports in general. So just like, if you kind of add kind of the athletics to it and the possibility to like compete, um, and you know, people competing and doing well and reaching their goals, it's just like, this is sort of the cherry on top for me. This is uh, one of the most hopeful conversations. Like, <laughs> like I'm now, I'm like super into hearing about your athletes. So if people wanted to follow along and and uh, either to find out more about your coaching, but really just to watch your people achieve their dreams, where where is the place to watch what's going on? So yeah, my website is Full Metal Coaching, M E T T L E Metal. Like you've got some metal. Um, I thought that was clever, by the way. I like. Is that. it? Yeah, yeah, I'm sort I of. Like I've that. always. My wife kind of like doesn't, I, I've always sort of been insecure, not insecure, but sort of like on the fence. Like, I don't know. Is it, is it a good Oh dude, it's super easy to find. Super Cause I was like, it's not metal, like the metal, right. it's metal. Like you're, you've got, you got grit. some metal, yeah. you got some grit. And exactly. I, that's, that's what it was my intention for it. You like, nailed you've it, got man. Some grit, so 100%. And now that's, that's that I'm good. hearing your philosophy on coaching, it seems to me to be like, this is you're, you're taking people on a hero's journey and giving them metal down down in down I'm, in hell. I'm trying. I wanted to. I want to teach them how to get some grit and uh, reach their goals. But so your website full metal so fullmetalcoaching.com coaching.com and then um, yeah, it's the same uh, Instagram, um, Twitter might be full metal. Though I mostly just Twitter stalk. I don't post that much. I'll, I'll throw them up there. I, I mean, I want to encourage people to go check out your Instagram account because. I, I guess I hadn't noticed the the uh, celebrating your people, but I, I look at it and you have a style that it like speaks to me. I mean, I think the well, way that you, you color grade, I think that. the way that you bring out your subjects and things that that it it actually is just one of those things. I found myself just looking at it and just being happy. So awesome. there's no Thank greater you. sign for somebody than than to have people. Love Thank you. Like yeah, I really like the, uh, you know, I've, I feel pretty lucky that I can use the photography for the coaching too, you know, and with the social media and stuff, I try to, um, you know, obviously my website is all my photography. And so that was a huge advantage, you know, I mean, as you know, with Anne, you know, she was struggling with trying to figure out where am I to get photography for the website, right? For her new company. It's like, yeah, that's a big problem. You know, it's like you can pay, 
you know, a lot to like do a photo shoot, but you know, who are you going to get? Like, I don't know. And then, you know, are you going to get stock photography or something like that? And it's just like going to be kind of all over the place style wise. So yeah, it worked out. Uh, it worked out great between us to, to sort of work together. So, so well, and that, having but. been one of your athletic models, I am, right. I, think you're great to work. So <laughs> I just, tried to be nice to you. <laughs> I was sicker than a dog that day. Oh, I, really? I, I, I was, I was knocked out for like five days after that, oh, but man. Uh, to close out, man, Eric, thank you so much for stopping by. I'm, yeah, thank a, you. I'm a fan of full metal coaching. So let's <laughs> hope you guys win everything and, uh, right. <laughs> let's, let's stay in touch, man. Thank yeah. You. Thanks buddy. Appreciate it. Great. Well, that's going to do it for this week's interview. I want to thank Eric Frazier for stopping by Eric and I just got to know each other, but I have come to find out that he is a very clever, very kind, and really interesting guy. So if you are into cycling or photography, definitely go check out his websites. Just another quick note, if you are anywhere near Saskatchewan, Canada in the coming weeks, on November 26th, I'm going to be with Jared McDaniel and Dwayne Faber, and we're going to put on the Three Brothers Roadshow at Canada's largest cattle auction, Agribition. So thank you to Chris Lane for setting this up. We are really excited, and we are going to make it a show worth listening to. Thanks so much for stopping by, and we'll be back on Friday for another episode of As the Crow Flies.